All right. Streaming live then from the KFBS Digital News Desk, Clayton Hester here um, from our digital stream. We've got David Yeskevich. Uh, David is with the Southeast Missouri State University Department of Accounting, Economics, and Finance. How are you doing today, David? I'm doing well. It is Friday. Yes. Hope you're doing all right. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. All, that Friday just makes it uh, makes it all that much more uh, much better. And it's all, it's always a pleasure. Then we know because when we're talking with David, that means we are we are headed uh, towards the end of our work week, um, and that means it's money talks with with David Yeskevich. It's our program about all economic headlines, money news, and um, any other information to uh, help you all building your economic lives as you look at the, the big picture around us. And so as we look then at uh, some information about uh, inflation, home sales, consumer sentiment, you know, we've got these economic indicators, the newly released um, new reports coming in today. Can you tell us more about the details going on with each of these? Yes, there were a few economic indicators reported today, and I think the one that would get the most attention uh, going beyond this week would be the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index, which is the preferred target for inflation by the Federal Reserve Board. And today's number, which would have covered the month of January, would have had some similarities with the Consumer Price Index that we reported last week. Uh, inflation still remains fairly high, although if you look month to month or year to year, you, you'd see some relief in that sense. Month to month, uh, you might want to look at a little bit closer, but the number for the the 12 month to the one year period uh, going through January of this year would have been 5.4% overall. If you look at headline inflation, if you look at core inflation, which would exclude food and energy prices, that number would be 4.7%. Now, if we look compared to the prior month of data, that 12-month period would have been up by a tenth of a percentage point for both the headline and the core numbers. So on a 12-month basis, the personal consumption price index uh, would have been just slightly up. Now, when I look at the monthly numbers, again, for the headline numbers, which include all goods and services, which we would in, in, involve food and energy as well, and then you look at the core, which would exclude them, those both were up by about 0.6% uh, in the month of January. So over a one-month basis, up by 0.6%. What's noteworthy there would be that that would be the highest monthly number in the PCE index and the rate of change in the PCE index since June of this past summer. So that's the highest we've seen in roughly six or seven months. So it's saying inflation is somewhat sticky. It's not going down as quickly as we would like to see it, despite higher interest rates. Um, so there, there's some uh, disappointment in that number. But still, we, we aren't seeing monthly numbers like we did in the first half of 2022 or the last quarter of 2021. So it looks like long term we're seeing some decline in inflation, although for this past month we saw a slight uptick in it based on the PCE, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index. So that's something that would likely get attention beyond this week. So uh, we've been hearing a lot that with the last two inflation readings, the first being from the Consumer Price Index last week, and then today's Personal Consumption Expenditures Index, it looks like inflation is higher than it was expected. Although we're seeing some longer 
trend of it, of it inching downward. Um, but it's not going down as quickly as we like to see it. So what you'll probably hear after this week is that uh, there's some discussion on whether the Federal Open Market Committee will raise the federal funds rate of interest by a quarter of a percentage point or a half a percentage point. I think one month ago, and if you would, would have read this week's um, minutes from the Federal Open Market Committee from a month ago, uh, at the beginning of February, we would have probably expected the Federal Open Market Committee to lean more towards a quarter percentage point increase in the federal funds rate. But I think after the last round of inflation data, again, from the CPI and the PCE, as well as the retail sales numbers we talked about last week and the uh, jobs report for January, I think we're all seeing somewhat higher activity or stronger activity than expected, which is a good thing. But if inflation remains stubbornly high or a bit sticky, uh, that might have a bad uh, story to it where the Federal Open Market Committee might lean towards higher interest rate increases. So we might see more talk of a half percent increase in the federal fund rate going beyond this week. So uh, we'll know more in, in about a month on whether that's the case or not, but we still have some more rounds or at least one more round of uh, job market and inflation data before that comes. All right. Taking a look then as well, NerdWallet reporting about that relationship, about the expectations, about taxes, about expected tax returns, where those are at as well, um, in, you know, in relationship to uh, America and as well as American uh, of perception about, um, about um, current inflation rates. Can you tell us more about, about that relationship, how things are looking along those lines? Yes. Um, each year, the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service, will increase, or I shouldn't say increase, they will adjust, but usually it would be an increase. They would adjust a number of tax provisions each year uh, that are tied to the cost of living or the rate of inflation. So um, each year, there's about 60 tax provisions if we look in recent years. Those could be tax credits, those could be tax deductions, those could be other uh, income ranges to qualify for deductions or exemptions or, or credits. Uh, each year there's roughly 60 tax provisions that are adjusted based on inflation. So there would be a concern that if you're earning more income this year, and if we saw inflation rise by roughly 6% in the calendar year or the tax year, I should say, of 2022, you might be concerned if your pay or your compensation rose by 6%, uh, you might inch into a higher tax bracket, but uh, you're really no better off in terms of the purchasing power of your income. That's something that is anticipated by public policy and the design of our tax code where we have some link or some connection between the rate of inflation and different tax uh, categories or different tax policies. So for example, if you look at the standard deduction for income taxes, that's adjusted each year based on the inflation rate. So if there's higher inflation in one year, you'd be able to deduct, deduct more in the standard deduction um, as a result of inflation. In addition, the income tax brackets for deciding your marginal income tax rate, uh, those also are adjusted each year based on the rate of inflation. Uh, the, the marginal income tax rates are not changed each year on inflation, but the tax brackets that would uh, be used to define what marginal tax rate you get would be adjusted based on inflation. Uh, so th those are some key 
ideas to keep in mind. Now, again, there's roughly 60 provisions each year that get this adjustment. The alternative minimum tax uh, range would be something that would be included. The earned income tax credit also would be linked to the rate of inflation. So again, many different provisions. So inflation does impact uh, tax obligations in that sense. And it's something that's already accounted for in the design of our, our tax system and the laws that are in place. All right. We're looking then as well at a report by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York taking a look at um, the conditions of uh, household debt levels and how those seem to be rising. Why? What, what's contributing to that? How does that stack up as well here in relationship to the pandemic era? Sure. Um, this report that came out last week from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York it's the quarterly report on household debt uh, and credit that uh, they, they re report. And it appeared that in the last quarter of 2022, there was a pretty significant increase in the level of household debt in the United States. So overall, if you look at the aggregated amount of debt that households have, which could come in a variety of forms, uh, that number would be roughly around $17 trillion. And of that 70, $17 trillion in debt that households have accumulated, most of that, roughly $12 trillion, would be mortgage debt, so buying homes. So debt by itself is not a bad thing. We, we don't like debt. We like to work it off. We like to pay it off. Uh, but if some of that debt is to finance people's homes that they pay off over time as they earn income, there's nothing necessarily bad about that. What would be concerning is to what extent is the debt, are the debt levels rising vis-a-vis -vis economic growth or vis-a-vis -vis real income of uh, households. So that, that'd be something you'd want to put more attention on. Something else that was noteworthy from this report would have been an increase in credit card debt. Now, credit card debt would be a small portion of the overall debt levels, but we might be somewhat more concerned with credit card debt uh, from the standpoint of it's something that may be a sign of overspending. It might be a sign of a lack of saving. And usually credit cards, almost every case credit cards, would have a much higher rate of interest uh, than, than other forms of debt. So that might be somewhat concerning that credit card debt is on the rise. Now, why would that be the case? Uh, you know, the, the only potential good news story could be that there's a lot of people employed who anticipate uh, being able to pay off that debt. So that might be part of it. But I think there's more of a bad news story there where some of that or a large portion of that increase in credit card debt would be due to higher prices, higher interest rates and incomes not uh, keeping up with the rate of inflation. So there, 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 that could be a, a bad news indicator if we look at that report from the New York Federal Reserve Boards, or the, the New York uh, Bank of the Federal Reserve System that came out last week. So credit card debt uh, rose quite a bit in the last quarter, and it surpassed the level of credit card debt before the pandemic. Now, before the pandemic, we didn't have high inflation. We had low interest rates, but we also had a strong labor market with low unemployment. So that, that good news theory or hypothesis I was mentioning earlier, where maybe people take on more debt because they're confident they'll pay it off. Uh, that might have been more of the pre-pandemic years uh, telling that story, but I don't think that's as convincing of a case now where we are seeing the higher interest rates and we are seeing the higher prices 
than, than uh, what we saw back then. So uh, when you see these numbers, you might want to take a look and, and think what could be causing them. And I think that's pretty much the, the story there. And I think we would expect that. Uh, but credit card debt would be near $1 trillion right now. So, I mean, I mean, one concern from that is if we do see some weakening in the economy this year, particularly in the second half, uh, you would have less flexibility to really manage around that if debt levels are higher and inflation is higher. So uh, if we think again, pre-pandemic, there was a higher savings rate, personal savings rate in the United States. So if there was this shock to the economy, this black swan event like that, uh, the, the pandemic that we saw, and, and if that were the case, you know, savings and low debt could kind of cushion consumers and cushion households away from a lot of the negative impacts. And that's something that we saw. Uh, but if savings, the savings rate is lower and if debt is higher, that's something where if there was a weakening in the economy or if interest rates have to stay higher than expected due to sticky inflation, that could be a bit of a concern. So uh, we're, not, we're, not, we're not at that level of panic yet, but that would be something I would point to as something that should be on the radar in terms of uh, being monitored as something that could be a sign of weakness or contributed weakness as we head into the, the latter part of this year. Absolutely. Um... Part of the ongoing conversation of our um, pandemic, post-pandemic economy has been the subject of working from home and, and how that is playing out and how companies are responding to it, what they're allowing for. Amazon's saying now that they are requiring three days at the office. Tell us more about the, the rationale behind it, um, how it's being received and so forth. If 2020 and 2021, those years, if those were the years of work from home, uh, and 2022 was a transition year, I, I think we're seeing more and more in the headlines that 2023 might be a year of return to, to office mandates. And you mentioned Amazon. Amazon made headlines this past week uh, when its CEO, Andrew Jassy, posted roughly a two-page memo on the company's uh, website or the company's blog. From, for, for investor relations or employee relations. It wasn't, it wasn't the sales website, Amazon, but it was one of their, their company websites. And the two-page memo was basically giving an essay or an argument for why uh, a three-day in-office work, we, of course they work you know, full-time, so they work beyond three days, but the, the, the work from, or the, the return to office mandate would require Amazon workers and corporate offices to work a minimum of three days in the office. And it got a lot of attention, one, because of the, the memo that Andrew Jassy wrote, uh, which would give an argument for why that would be a positive thing and why that would be something that would uh, be beneficial to the company. Uh, but also there was some backlash among employees at Amazon. Uh, there was another website where some employees were posting uh, some uh, concerns about that. You know, you know, some found that it was somewhat uh, abrupt or somewhat sudden of an announcement. And there are some concerns, as you could imagine, there could be concerns that uh, perhaps there's issues related to child care or elder care. There could be issues related to commuting. Uh, keep in mind, for a lot of these larger leading companies like Amazon, their, their corporate offices and headquarters aren't really in low cost of living areas. They're usually in large metropolises or large metropolitan areas where the cost of living is rather expensive. And also the time that you would need to commute in much busier traffic would likely be more burdensome and, and, and more of a concern. 
so there, there was some backlash in that sense from employees, and that kind of got a lot of attention. Um, the the, the two-page memo that was posted on that uh, Amazon website is publicly available, and, and if you were to read through it, it's, it's rather interesting to see the the, the pro side of return to office mandates that we're seeing more and more in the news. Uh, there's other companies like Disney, like GM, like Google, several of the leading banks like JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, uh, Citigroup, all of them have uh, had similar types of announcements over the last six months. But if you look at that memo by Andrew Jassy early on, as you would probably expect, you'd, you'd hear something about younger workers who were hired since the pandemic began. So over the last three years, it's been already. Uh, there have been several employees hired by Amazon and there uh, may be some concern that the, the workplace culture or, or uh, the uh, institutional knowledge of Amazon isn't being shared with those new workers. Uh, another element of concern that uh, was given as an argument for return to work return to office, I should be careful there, returning to the office would have to do with uh, when you have teams or you need to collaborate and share ideas, uh, it's possible that being on Zoom like we are right now might not be the most efficient manner for doing those types of work projects. Uh, a lot of times we could talk, we could share ideas, and then once the meeting is over, we log off. But uh, sometimes after the meeting, we have good follow-up ideas that are good to just continue and, and talk with. Uh, if you've ever stayed after a meeting to share additional ideas, you either bump, bump into someone uh, in a copy room or, or, or the, uh, the, the water cooler or, or someplace like that, that'd be something where you can't get those spontaneous interactions when you're working remotely. So uh, you could probably imagine that those certainly are relevant to Amazon and other companies out there. Uh, but uh, there, there is this ongoing struggle or ongoing concern that uh, there is some attractive nature to having hybrid work formats or working from home. And we hear a lot about ongoing labor shortages, particularly for uh, high talent or, or high skilled and high demand uh, workers that many of those employees are at, at Amazon. So as you can imagine, there might be con some concern that this is a, a perk being able to work from home or, or hybrid that many people would like. And there might be concern that in this current labor market, which remains strong, uh, there's some concern that maybe that could result in some people looking for other jobs who are currently at Amazon and looking for other places to work. So there might be some recruitment and retention issues that uh, would be part of the concerns of those employees who aren't fond of this uh, change in policy at Amazon. But we're seeing more and more of it. Again, I think 2023 will be the year of return to office mandates at many of the large companies in the United States. Disney also made headlines in the last few weeks because their CEO, Bob Iger, also had a similar return to office mandate. And uh, there was a petition of over 2,000 Disney employees uh, that was... Uh, uh, sent back to the individual, hoping to cause some change uh, in, in that plan. Uh, I'm not aware of any change there, but again, you'll hear similar stories. You could hear stories also of concerns that we're not really through the pandemic yet, and some people might want to prefer to stay out of the the office setting and work from home. Uh, perhaps those with some, some health concerns and, and uh, issues that may still uh, be affected by the pandemic. Um, if you look at GM, that might be an interesting case where in the fall of last year, they reported a plan or they announced a plan where they would like to 
go to a three-day in-office work week and be, be remote the other day, so some type of a hybrid model. Uh, they kind of postponed that plan till this year uh, because there was some negative feedback or some, some backlash from employees. So, uh, again, I think we'll hear more and more of these in the news uh, as we go throughout 2023, but uh, certainly the transition from the pandemic is continuing, and uh, it's good to get back to normal, but there are some uh, frictions in that, as we see. All right. Before we wrap up today, anything that we should be watching in the weeks ahead, anything that econ economists are uh, paying attention to in the days to come? Sure. Uh, as always, there's always something to be reported on. On Monday of next week, we'll get a durable goods sales report. Now, durable goods is something I like to look at because often with durable goods, those are big ticket items like refrigerators, uh, washing machines, dishwashers. Those are things that if uh, one were concerned about uncertainty in the economy or high debt levels, like we mentioned earlier, that would be something where those are, are purchases that are fairly easy to postpone. You could use existing durable goods or appliances longer. You could postpone new purchases, maybe get ones that are broke, get them repaired. So that's something you might see a little bit more cyclical or pro-cyclical when it comes to movements in the business cycle. So that's something I'm interested in seeing next week. Uh, we'll also get from the institution of uh, the Institute of Supply Management. We'll get uh, indexes on business activity related, related to manufacturing production and also services production. So if we're continuing to see this shift away from tangible goods and towards more services, again, that transition of, of return to normalcy from the pandemic, uh, it'd be interesting to see how that dynamic between manufactured goods and services appears to be uh, evolving based on the ISM indexes that come out next week. Uh, this past week, we had two earnings reports where two bellwether companies gave some uh, caution or some uh, somewhat of weaker outlooks for this current year. And those two companies would have been Walmart and Home Depot. Now, interestingly, next week, their two counterparts or their two uh, top rivals are reporting their quarterly earnings reports. So we'll get reports from Target and Lowe's next week. So I think you'll probably see something similar in terms of what their outlooks are. But you'll have to look at the numbers to see how these specific companies are doing financially. Uh, and, and last but not least, we'll also get some uh, updated labor market data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. In particular, we'll get updates on state unemployment numbers. So as always, a pretty busy week, some interesting things to look at, and uh, certainly we'll have something to talk about then. All right. David Yaskevich, thank you so much for being here today. We really appreciate you making the time. Oh, thank you. As always, the pleasure was mine. Audience as well, appreciate you all tuning in, spending time with us here today. Uh, tune in again next week. We'll be here back again. And uh, stick around for Heartland News at 6 o'clock, coming up just around the corner here in uh, a few minutes. We'll see you then.